This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Keely. Hey, Chris. Welcome to Heard It on the Sidelines. Heard It. Heard It on the Sideline with Shotgun Spratly. Spratly. Welcome to another edition of the Hurt on the Sidelines podcast with Shotgun Spratling, where we discuss what's going on at USC, but also try to pull back the curtain a little bit to give you an insider's perspective. The Hurt on the Sidelines podcast is part of the Peristyle podcast family. On today's episode, we're skipping the interviews that we normally have. We're just going to jump in. We're going to have a mailbag edition. You know, we didn't have a preview tunnel vision this week. We didn't have a two-star composite podcast. So I want to jump in, talk about some of those things that uh, normally we would be getting to in those podcasts. And we we tried to get together a two-star composite podcast about basketball. Couldn't make it work with our, the timing and everything with us traveling to the Utah game. But I wanted to start right there. Let's start with the basketball program and what they've done on the recruiting trail this last week, starting with the commitment from Silas Dimery Jr., the combo guard four-star from the state of North Carolina. He's playing at Combine Academy and in the Charlotte area. Silas Dimery Jr., uh, the first person – now, the first commitment for USC in this class committed last Friday. Big pickup for USC to get him to come to USC over NC State, Tennessee, Alabama, some other schools in the Southeast that were really recruiting him hard. And the interesting thing about Silas Demarin Jr., getting him to come, he was actually born in Los Angeles. His dad played for the Los Angeles uh, Avengers Arena League football team. Um, but he's coming back to Los Angeles in that regard. You know, he, he told me he was a little bit too young to really remember his time in L.A., but really enjoyed his official visit out to USC and finding out and seeing firsthand that USC plans to move to a two-guard system this season and really try to push the tempo a little bit more, really enticing to him. He is a combo guard, really has the ball in his hands most of the time uh, when he's playing right now, whether it be for Team Curry during the uh, the club AAU t- team or with uh, the Combine Academy team that he's going to be playing with this fall. Uh, the number 59 overall player in the 24-7 sports rankings, number 14 as a combo guard, number two player from North Carolina. But what's interesting about him is he can play off the ball. You know, he's got to work on a shot a little bit. That's the area of his game he's still got to improve on and get some more consistency on. But he can play off the ball. He's a driver, can attack the basket. And if he plays off the ball, that means USC is still in the mix for Isaiah Collier, the number one player in the country, the five-star point guard. So we're going to see what happens with that recruitment. Isaiah Collier is going to make a commitment. I believe the date I last saw was November 18th, so about a month away. USC also picked up a commitment from Isaiah Collier's teammate, Arrington Page, the the six foot nine center, uh, committed to USC on Monday evening. And, you know he's a, a kid that doesn't do a ton of media, but I did get a chance to catch up with him this week. And he said, you know, the way the biggest thing I asked him was, you know, the biggest thing that stood out about USC. He said, 
They put guys in the NBA. So USC's track history the last few years with the Mobley brothers, with Anyeka Kongwu, seeing guys like even Nick Rakosevich and how he's had success uh, overseas as well. Six foot nine, two hundred twenty pounds out of Marietta, uh, Marietta, Georgia, Wheeler High School. Always been a good one of the top teams, uh, one of the top schools in the Georgia out at the Metro Atlanta area. They were good when I was in high school in Georgia. They're still good now. They always produce a number of talented kids. He's the number 60-rated kid in the 24-7 sports rankings for the 2023 class, the number eight center, number seven player from Georgia. But again, leads things up to the potential of USC getting Isaiah Collier. Maybe USC's definitely in that mix. And it was revealed uh, in an article uh, earlier today or yesterday on the 24-7 Sports about how he's been out west recently. He did uh, come on when Arrington Page came on his official visit. I was told that he also, that Isaiah Collier was also in town that weekend. Don't know how much he got to check out USC necessarily, but he did stop by talk with the coaches for at least a little bit was going to try to get to the football game was not able to confirm whether or not he was able to make it there we did not see him on the sidelines had had everybody looking to see uh you know if he was around but no one spotted him necessarily in that one but the fact that he was back on campus another positive sign for usc both he and page took an official visit in um in march i believe it was in march i uh, may excuse me uh, when usc was kind of going through their graduation so this was an opportunity for page to kind of see usc in action see them at practice same thing for collier gets a chance to see what usc looks like you know how their practices are run all those type of things that maybe weren't they didn't have a chance to see when they visited in may uh, page took another official visit Collier was just on an unofficial visit basketball kind of a unique rule where they can take five official visits their junior year and five official visits their senior year. So getting to be pampered and you know enjoy the the opportunity to to get out to some different schools potentially or just go to the same five schools. That's up to you uh, as a recruit. So I, I'm now even more devastated that that uh, my genetics did not make me a six foot nine post player at least at minimum so that I would have a chance to be recruited and get some official visits in there. But two big commitments for USC is they try to build this 2023 class. They were unranked previously, but now they are up to number uh, 26 in the recruiting rankings after they got Paige's commitment. Haven't seen if they picked up anybody. Uh, you know, they haven't, they haven't hasn't been anyone in front of them pick up anybody to push them down the rankings or anything. They are overall ranked number 26, right behind a team that some USC fans might loathe, might be familiar with. That team across town, UCLA, is right now ranked number 25. If if the holding the rankings were to hold and USC was to get the commitment of Isaiah Collier, USC would jump into the top 10 and have a potential of having a top 10 overall class once again uh, for the second year in a row. Obviously, the big news on the for the team was the 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 revealing that Vince Iwachukwu unfortunately suffered a cardiac incident this summer and his status going forward is just un unknown right now so we're going to see what the basketball team looks like uh you know had a chance to stop by practice for just a couple minutes earlier this week when i was in town for a wedding and a little bit banged up right now it's that time of camp where everyone's kind of 
tired of playing each other and has been out there long enough. You start to get some of those bumps and bruises and whatnot. So USC is working and you know trying to, to figure out what exactly they have with a bunch of n- new pieces. They obviously have Boogie Ellis and Drew Peterson to lead the way to be that two guard, the two, the two guards to kind of lead the two guard system that USC has used in the past with Andy Enfield when they had Julian Jacobs, when they had Jordan McLaughlin. And that was probably the most fun a uh, team to watch of USC is just as far as pushing the tempo. So we'll see how much they get back to that, how much they can trust Boogie Ellis and Drew Peterson's decision-making going forward. And we'll see if Kobe Johnson gets in the mix. We'll see if Malik Thomas, Reese Dixon-Waters, if those guys are trusted to handle the ball as well. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they're, how the, the different players on the wings are used to kind of give us an idea of how Silas Demery Jr. might be used when he gets on campus as a guy that potentially pushed the ball as well. Um, and then Arrington Page, a guy that's going to be down low, can also step out, can shoot the ball a little bit from the outside. His game will continue to develop the longer he's on campus. So an interesting pickup there for him as well. Just wanted to touch on those things because we don't get to talk much basketball recruiting otherwise. But now let's jump into your guys' mailbag questions. You know, I, I, I said when I put out a tweet about it and put it on the, the Peristyle, that, hey, I'm going to focus – the priority is going to go to some basketball questions, some baseball questions. Did get a chance to talk about the baseball program as well. Really exciting news that Eric Hammond, the star freshman uh, commit that USC had last year that had to undergo Tommy John surgery, was having his first bullpen this week. That's great news to hear as he's on his recovery, and they hope to have him back when the season starts. I've heard really good things about Caden Aoki over there, the Notre Dame transfer for USC, and just the uh, just wipeout changeup that he has. It's just nasty. Just kind of disappears on hitters. Looking forward to seeing the baseball team in, in in the in the spring and getting a chance to see them with my own eyes. Maybe even get a chance to see them this fall when I'm in town for one of the football games in November. We'll see if the how the schedule lines up for that. But want to give priority to basketball questions, baseball questions. And then a little bit of player participation formation breakdown questions because I do have a new role on the staff this year. I've become the managing editor for the site. So I've been doing a little bit different stuff. Haven't had as much time to do, you know, the film study stuff, to do all the player participation stuff early in the week and be able to get it out. So it's going to have a little bit more discussion. But I've still been doing those things behind the scenes. Um, You know, I haven't been able to write as much because I'm, you know, kind of leading some of our younger writers and kind of developing them a little bit and trying to help everybody out in that regard. So that's one of the reasons why you may not have seen as much stuff from me uh, in the last few weeks or the last month or so as the season has gotten underway. But looking at, you know, I've enjoying the role and getting a chance to really help some of the younger guys and kind of develop them and, you know, how we got to go about doing some of the stories and stuff. So it's new role for me, a little bit different, but that's part of the reason why you may not have seen as much from me. But the one thing that I continue to do is the player participation. It takes me forever to do it each week, but it's a labor of love because I get a chance to kind of break down the plays as they're going to make sure I'm seeing every single player that's out there and get to see some of the different trends, see who's being used a little bit more, to see Josh Follow kind of stepping into a new role, to see how much USC uses a certain look, how much they're using the tight ends, how much they're using you know, the running backs and which running back they're using the most. All those type things are really interesting to me. I really find them interesting. So hopefully it can bring some of that stuff to you, you guys as well. You know, One of the things I thought was really interesting from this Washington State game, just a couple of, of tidbits that I you know, have found along the way. How about the game of Brandon Peely? No one really noticed Brandon Peely in this game much. I don't think so. His name wasn't mentioned probably on the broadcast too often. 
Well, he goes out and he plays 22 snaps. Washington State gained 20 yards on those 22 snaps. They gained an average of 0.9 yards per play when Brandon Peely was on the field defensively. That's a crazy stat right there, and that just kind of stands out. Now, it wasn't necessarily that he was making a ton of plays, but he was a part of it. If you play 22 snaps and the offense only uh, only has 20 yards, that is saying you are doing something right. Now, it may not be something that shows up necessarily in the box, in the box score that you made a big tackle or you made a sack or whatever it may be, but the fact that you were in there and the offense is not producing when you were on the field, that kind of stands out to me. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, Jacoby Covington, and no, to no fault of his own, was only in for one snap in the game. Uh, Sierra Wright missed a tackle on the sideline, and Dante Williams said, hey, get out, we're going to give you a playoff. Puts Jacoby Covington in. It happens to be the 45-yard bomb that Washington State was able to hit that Anthony Beavers was called for on a pass interference play. So his yards per play average, whereas Brandon P. Lewis was .9, Jacoby Covington, because that was his only defensive play in the game, was 45 yards per play. So that's just a kind of a rare oddball stat there. So I thought it was pretty interesting. Looking at a couple of other notable things from the participation charts this week, Justin Didis returning, that's a positive sign for USC in their offensive line. Lake McCree was back in the lineup. Jamar Sakona actually returned to the field. Now, he'd been dressed for a couple games, but he returned to the field first time since, I believe, week one uh, of the season where he you know, he actually had a sack in that first game against Rice and just hasn't had a chance to get back on the field. I played a little bit against Stanford, but then three games he had been out, had not played. The last couple snaps late in the game, he got back in there. That's a positive development for the defensive line, just getting another body back. We also saw Adonis Ote. He was dressed. Kobe Pepe was dressed. We've seen Joshua Jackson Jr., Zion Branch. We've seen those guys dress, Britton Allen. So seeing all those guys, that's a positive sign that there's some more bodies that had been banged up previously that were back. Obviously, USC was without Shane Lee. They were without Terrell Bynum for a second week in a row. Um, and then some of the players that they've had out been out for a little while now, Carson Tabarachi, um, you know, Jude Wolf, Mohassan, Romello Height, all those guys, you know, are have been out for multiple weeks and continue to be out. We'll see when Jude Wolf gets back. That's the one we're kind of looking to see, uh, keeping an eye on. One guy who came back, and you may not have noticed this, because he was only on special teams covering some kickoffs, but Chris Thompson Jr. came back in this game as well. And how why that could be important is because he's such a you know kind of a dynamic weapon you can use in different ways. He's been playing linebacker this season. Obviously, he's got to get back in the flow of the things. But maybe there's some times in, in the future where Alex Grinch says, you know, especially after the bye week, he gets back in good game shape. Maybe there's some different packages where they want a a, a linebacker on the field that was previously a safety that can cover a little bit more. Maybe in some dime packages, maybe just on third and longs. Maybe he's a guy that you sub in to use some, use in some different ways that way. So it was in, uh, interesting to note that he was back on the field. So that's a positive for USC. Uh, one interesting thing in the other direction, Damani Jackson was on the the first two kickoffs, and he was on one of the kick coverages, or excuse me, the the punt coverages. And then he just disappeared for the rest of the game. I don't know if, if something happened. He kind of stumbled a little bit on one of the, the kickoffs, but he did not. Re- he was not in the game the rest of the night after you know USC's second kickoff of the game. So that was really early in the game. So it was interesting to see that he played those initial snaps, and then he was out the rest of the time. So I don't know if he you know he got a little dinged up or something on one of the kickoffs. But uh, unfortunate to see him not be in there just because of how well he's been you know 
how much he's been doing for USC and playing, showing some of the, the potential that he has out there. Taking a look at some of the players who had the their career highs, they set or tied their career highs. Um, and it, it was interesting, some of the names that you see on here, Travis Dye, not that uh, unexpected with the workload that they gave him. This is his USC career high. Obviously, I don't have the numbers from his days in Oregon. I could take a look and glance at the PFF and what they – but uh, my numbers are a little bit different than PFFs. PFF includes penalties. And also, PFF just it, it isn't as meticulous, I don't think, as I am. I've had some discrepancies the last few weeks. I think that they're slacking a little bit as far as their participation and different things like that. But some other guys that had the career high – Sierra Wright, he is basically locked up that number two position at that cornerback position. He was rotating a little bit more with Damani Jackson or Jacoby Covington, but not so much recently. So maybe that was due to Damani Jackson getting a little bit banged up. But Sierra Wright has been playing really well, and it's not you know it's not like they're picking on him on one side or anything. He and Makai Blackman are both playing really well at the cornerback spots right now. Anthony Beavers Jr. also set his USC career high for a total snap count. Uh, you know, not not to be unexpected when Kalen Bullock leaves the game and Anthony Beavers got the majority of those. Bryson Shaw also set his, you know, USC career high um, because of the same type of thing there. Tyrone Tolini, uh, he's been, you know, came back from injury, missed a couple weeks, but has come back and has been an impact guy. Got the start uh, on the defensive line this game for Dejon Benton. And as a guy that's making some impact in there, the, you know, he's 25, 26 years old, I believe it is. Just strong body, you know, he's a big body up front. He's a guy that can really, you know, hold the point of attack with that. He's got that grown man strength already a little bit. So holding the point of attack and then getting in the backfield and create some havoc as well. Tua Sivi Nomura, both playing special teams and getting a couple drives on the defensive side. Now, I will say those two drives that he got, you know, because USC kind of rotated their linebackers early in the game. First two drives were Eric Gentry and Raylan Goforth. And this is because they did not have Shane Lee in the game. Then the after that, they had uh, Eric Gentry with Tua Sivi Nomura. And then the, the fourth drive of the game, it was Raylan Goforth and Tua Sivi Nomura. Now, both of those drives that Nomura was in were the two drives that Washington State scored on. And at least one of those touchdowns was against him, and possibly both of them. You know, one of them is a zone coverage. One of them was a man coverage where he, you know, bit on the play fake and came in. So that's the area where he still got to improve on. To a Stephen Demora does is, you know, when the play fake happens, he's a guy that just is wanting to attack downhill, downhill, downhill to stop the run, and he's been susceptible to the play action fakes. So he, he's got to continue to work on that. Don't get sucked in by the eye candy. Uh, make sure that you're, you know reading your keys, focusing on doing your job, not trying to do too much. And a couple other guys that set career highs, Jack Casasante, who is the long snapper for USC. This is his first year as the long snapper. So part of the reason why he set that record is because a lot of punts this game for USC. They had a season high for punts, so Aiden Sleep Dalton also set his career high. So I thought that was just interesting. Some of the guys that set their career their total snap career highs at while at USC usually tells you kind of some of the storylines of the game, but without a do, let's jump into your guys' questions. You guys had some great ones. So I want to jump in and just talk about those. I'm going to answer as many as I can. I got a kind of a set timeline that I've got to be done recording this podcast so that I can get ready to go catch my 6 a.m. flight to get to Salt Lake city, but I'll answer as many questions as we can get in before then.
We'll start with my guy, JJ from Thessalonica. He said, have there been any two back sets with Travis Dye and Relique Brown back there together? And that's an interesting question. There actually have not. When USC has gone to two back sets, Austin Jones has been on the field one way or another, whether it be with Travis Dye or with Relique Brown. So it's interesting that those two guys haven't been on the field necessarily together. USC only actually ran a two-back set, two-running back set for one snap against Washington State, which I thought was kind of interesting after they had used it a little bit more frequently in previous games, pulling it up right now just to check on the number exactly. Um, but, you know, the, the two-back sets hadn't been using it a ton. You know, seven, five, two, two, four snaps overall. But the low, season low is now from Washington State. They only used uh, one two-back snap in that game. Now they've used some different different alignments where they've had two guys in the backfield with the tight ends kind of working as a faux fullback. You know, kind of offsetting beside the quarterback. But the, back to the original question, there have not been any snaps so far with Travis Dye and Relique Brown both in the backfield together. Mike Fisher asked a similar question. Seems to me like we started the season with quite a few two-back sets, but I've gone away for that, or is that just my imagination? Now, they used the the they used Austin Jones a little bit as that offset back. They used Travis Dye a little bit as that offset back, but those have kind of been replaced with Lake McCree kind of taking over that role as the primary guy, kind of standing right beside Caleb Williams, and usually the running back being behind it in a – in a pistol formation, so kind of like an offset eye type of look that USC is using. So not a ton of two-back sets necessarily. Like I said, only seven against Rice. They had five against Stanford and a kneel down, two two in a kneel down, four in a kneel down, and one. So it's not like they're using it a ton. They did use it a little bit more those first couple games, but I think the the kind of the development of the tight ends to use them more as they, you know, kind of move them around a little bit in that H-back slash fullback role. I think that's why we haven't seen as much. But it could also be that there's some some plays that are that they're saving up a little bit with some different designs where they use the running backs in different ways off that two-back look to kind of that they're waiting on to use against certain teams or certain looks that they're waiting on to get. Matt Yabuki asks, what is USC doing to prepare for the elevation in Salt Lake? Should we anticipate more in-game substitutions as well? That's interesting. We didn't really hear much this week, actually, about the elevation and any discussions about that. I had it kind of cued as one of my questions to ask Lincoln Riley today. Didn't get a chance to get to that one in, in the list of questions that I wanted to ask. But, you know, it, it's interesting coming from Oklahoma you hear about Salt Lake City, you probably don't think of elevation, but that is definitely one of the issues that can that can be challenging at Rice Eccles Stadium. So it's not like you really think of, oh, Denver, Boulder. Yeah, you definitely Mile High Stadium, the Broncos, you think of elevation, but Salt Lake City is sneaky with the elevation. Uh, to to anyone that's not from the West Coast, you know, when I first got to to USC, got out to LA, I didn't think of the elevation at Salt Lake City, but that is definitely something that can have an impact. I think if the coaches are aware of it, and they probably have been told by someone else that they've coached with and whatnot, hey, you got to make sure that you're getting guys in and out. I think you will see some more in-game substitutions, then then maybe a little bit more rotation than you have seen the last couple weeks, maybe more back towards what they were doing at Rice, not necessarily just getting the young guys involved, but the fact that you want to keep guys fresh. And I actually asked a question to Lincoln Riley, um, you know, kind of about, you know, he was asked about Travis Dye, and I said, hey, how do you balance 
riding the hot hand, whether it be in the game or throughout the season, and keeping guys fresh. You know, you want to keep guys fresh for the entire season. You don't want to overdo, you know, riding Travis Die too much early in the season, the first six games, and then suddenly, you know, down the stretch, you know, when you're playing UCLA and Notre Dame back to back and maybe even a Pac 12 championship in three straight weeks, your best players just don't have any gas left. You know, your Tuli Tuli Pelotus or your Travis Dyes, guys with it at positions where you rotate a little bit more. Uh, on a normal basis where you if you 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 build break down their stamina as the season progresses and suddenly at the end of the season they don't have anything and he said hey that's a, it's a tough call it's something that it, it's tough to de- to decide you know when do you ride roll with a guy and when do you kind of try to get more guys in there and they said hey we wanted to get Austin Jones after leaving the game they felt we should have probably got him in there more is what the coaching staff said uh where he played three snaps on the offensive end now he played 13 snaps on special teams and Mario Williams, I, I tweeted this out, but Mario Williams should have been petitioning for Austin Jones to be in there more. That sounds kind of strange. But if you look at the three snaps that Austin Jones was in the game, two of them were Mario Williams touchdown catches, a 38-yard touchdown, a 24-yard touchdown. So, you know, he when he was on the field, he helped contribute to some big plays there for USC, whether it was just making sure he got a block to keep a guy from coming off the edge, getting just enough of him on that second touchdown that, Caleb Williams was able to step up in the pocket and deliver a, a strike to the Mario Williams where he makes a nice catch on. But yeah, I think you'll see a little bit more substitutions this week. And especially, you know, you want to do that in the first half, late in the in the in the second quarter, that middle third of the second quarter. You want to make sure you're getting some guys in there to keep guys fresh so that in the second half you can play your studs as much as possible. Alex Asani asks, if you were the USC defense coordinator, offense coordinator, how would you attack Utah? How will USC adjust against zone or man defense? You know, and, and this is interesting. This is something RJ and I would have been going back and forth on a little bit during the Tunnel Vision preview show. But, you know, I, I think you got to, you know, attack Utah up front first. That's what their strength is. That's what you, you know, they want to, you know, be able to pound, ground and pound. That's what they've been known for, the, the trench attacks that they've had. That's not necessarily what they are this season. So I think you got to dominate them up front and kind of take that will away from them and take the, you know, take that, you know, kind of uh, that uh, forceful attack that they normally have, take it away from them, you know, show them, Hey, we're not going to be, uh, we're not going to be intimidated by you guys. We're not coming in here being scared, anything like that. So they've struggled a little bit on the ground, uh, whether it be running the ball or whether it be, you know, Tavion Thomas just hasn't had as big of a season so far this season. Uh, for them as he did last year a lot of in- expectations coming in after he had a big season last year a ton of touchdowns but they haven't run the ball as well as you, you would expect from them and then on the defensive side when they've struggled this se- this so far this season against Florida against UCLA they've given up over 200 yards in both those games uh, 200 yards on the ground that is so I think USC has to attack on the ground and be able to shut down the Utah attack up front uh, on the ground. And I think that's the big key in this matchup for me, offensively, defensively. Utah's secondary has been really good. Uh, you know, their past game numbers have, you know, been pretty staunt. Uh, and, you know, Clark Phillips III is one of my favorite players in the country. A great kid, a kid that I got to know a little bit while he was at La Habra. Uh, a guy that I don't know why USC never really uh, was interested in. Him and C.J. Stroud are the two guys that I, you know, I felt like these are dudes. I don't know why USC is not trying to get them, and both of them end up committed to Ohio State. Now, 
Clark Phillips ended up flipping his commitment to Utah, and he's having a great season there. He you know, was able to go in and get early playing time starting in the 2020 season and has been a stud for them since. He's got five interceptions this year with a couple of them being going back for pick sixes. I, if I'm USC, I try to attack the other side, stay away from him if, if need be, and I'm interested to see will he be shadowing Jordan Addison. If so – I use Addison as a decoy at least a little bit early and try to get Mario Williams going, try to get him out in space because I think you can really attack Utah that way. And what will be interesting on the other side is, okay, Utah maybe sees the stats and says that USC is just not as good against zone defense as they are man defense because they got these elite wide receivers that can make guys miss, that can you know cut on a dime and suddenly get open. So do they go away from what they're good at? which is man coverage and what they've been known for under Morgan Scaly and play more zone. Obviously everyone remembers the, the YOLO, the YOLO raid game of Matt Fink, just tossing the ball up and Utah, just not making an adjustment because they had Jalen Johnson. They had all these guys in that secondary that would become NFL guys. So they thought we can play man to man and we're going to do that, but you couldn't do that against the wide receiving core that USC had. Now, I don't think the USC wide receiving core is quite as deep at, at the, the top-end guys, the four starters, as it was when you had Michael Pittman leading the way with Amon Ross, St. Brown, Tyler Vons, and uh, I think that was uh, maybe that was a baby Drake London in 2019. Um, or it, So I don't, I don't know that you're quite as deep on the starters there for USC, but USC can roll in multiple guys, multiple guys at you. And I would just continue to to try to do that to wear down some of that the secondary as well. You know, if you're if you're having a run play, then the decoy guy as a wide receiver, I don't want you to stop blocking. I want you running deep if they're gonna run with you. Just try to wear those guys out. We'll get somebody else in to to run another fake the next play. So though that's one of the ways that I would try to attack Utah is try to wear down the DBs as much as possible with some of the routes that you're running, just when you are running routes. Uh, but also you know, you, you got to be able to run the ball. And if you run the ball well with Travis Dye, then that changes what Utah can do defensively. And I think that's where USC will have success. And then if they try to stay man, they try to do some of the things they did against Utah, which was, you know, they br- brought some uh, pressures up the middle, bringing both the linebacker and the safety. Dorian Thompson Robinson did a really good job of seeing those things, getting rid of the ball, backing up a little bit and being able to find a a little bit extra time to then be able to get the ball out to his crossers. He had some crossing routes and, you know, some of the things that USC hasn't used a ton of this season, but one of the touchdowns was to Logan Loya, the former St. John Bosco and Orange Lutheran product who took one, I think it was like a three or four yard pass as far as from the line of scrimmage to where it got to Loya and he took it for a 70 something yard touchdown. So you know, if, if they're going to attack and bring pressure, especially up the middle, get rid of the ball quickly, get to those crossing routes, get some slant routes, get the ball in your playmaker's hands, and let Jordan Addison, Mario Williams go do some work. Ball Zach Hangman wants to know, does it bother anyone else when they send the running back out all the way wide? Is this a 100% decoy to get a defender over there as they never throw to whoever it is? So there's two different things when you're sending that when you're going into an empty set, because this is always when USC has four wide receivers, they're then you know flexing out, uh, splitting out Travis Dye or Austin Jones, one of those guys, and putting them, and usually putting them all the way to the the far side of the field, putting those guys out to the the the, the far end. They're not just kind of moving them into a slot and then trying to run a certain route with them. They are using them to run routes, and usually it's like a little hitch 
um, on the outside. And we have seen Travis Dye catch a couple balls out there and Austin Jones as well. So it's not just a decoy. But the thing it does is it changes the defensive look that you're going to get. And when you when you single that guy out there, that means either the linebacker is then going to go with him, and that takes the linebacker out of the middle of the field. So potentially you can run some quarterback draw, some quarterback power stuff there, or that tells you it's man coverage if the if the linebacker is going out there. So now you know kind of you it helps you identify it's a coverage indicator a lot of times is is what we call it is that you know when you send somebody in motion okay is the defense going with them is the defense staying set or do they rotate someone else out there so it could you know they could move out the the linebacker then takes the slot receiver now suddenly their best cornerback is guarding your running back you got to say that is, that's a win if we can take away your best cornerback and use our running back out there that's basically a guy that's just going to hold the coverage. Now suddenly you get Mario Williams and you get Jordan Addison because this is what exactly what happened on the first touchdown from USC. They split out Travis Dye, and now suddenly you got Mario Williams in the slot. You got Jordan Addison on the outside of him, and then on the far outside of that is Travis Dye. So now the, the Washington State's best cornerback, he's in a zone coverage, but now he's got Travis Dye, and he's got to hold a little bit tight to that. And he sees Jordan Addison run inside. Okay, well, he sees that happen, but then he doesn't pay attention enough and see that Mario Williams runs basically a slot fade to the outside. He gets vertical and then gets out to the, the boundary, and suddenly there's that wide-open space against the defense that Washington State has run, and part of it is because they flexed out uh, Travis Dye, and he's holding that, that cornerback um, Chow Smith, uh, he's holding him down and keeping him from getting depth to be able to be underneath on a cover two look that they had right there to be underneath Mario Williams. So then the safety can play over the top a little bit more. And maybe he's a little bit closer to, to uh, Mario Williams on that play. Uh, obviously, when Kayla Williams breaks the pocket and rolls out to his right, that attracts the look of the defenders as well. And there were a lot of eyes in the backfield, but it all starts with the play design, and that's sending the running back out to the outside to then force the defense to, hey, are you going to make an adjustment and try to play man coverage and move a linebacker out here? Or are you going to try to just leave your cornerback out there? If you leave the cornerback out there, all right, then the offense feels like it's a win. We've got our, we've taken away their best cornerback, and we still have our four wide receivers going and running routes. And one of those wide receivers, this time it was Mario Williams, is probably at least starting the play lined up against a linebacker. So you got to just immediately think, okay, that's a win for our team there. So that's something that you're you're seeing. And USC, I thought it was interesting. They didn't do it at all against Arizona State. They I think they have one play actually where they where they went uh or they had zero plays where they went five wide with an empty set where it was just Caleb Williams in the backfield. Now, they flexed out the, the running back, I believe, one time, but that wasn't in a five-wide set. So, you know, this was something that they, they didn't do last week. Suddenly, they come back to it against uh, Washington State, and that's all the 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 matchups and the, 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 the film study leading up to it. Okay, what's going to work this week? What's not going to work? The game planning that goes into it, and that's the stuff that really fascinates me. But I thought it was really interesting that that's one of the things they went back to this week after not using it all last week and you saw the success that they had on it, they averaged 9.7 yards per play when they went to an empty set this game. They did six plays and averaged almost a first down on every single snap of it. So that tells you that that one's being a little bit more successful, and it'll be something that you'll probably see a little bit against Utah and try to get 
you know, try to get Travis Dye out wide of the field, and suddenly now Clark Phillips is guarding him instead of Travis, uh, or instead of Jordan Addison or Mario Williams, and now you feel like you can have more success when you have your top two receivers going up against the third best cornerback and or, or the third best safety at the nickelback spot, and then whoever else is in the middle of the field, whether it be a safety dropping down or a linebacker coming out to the inside to play that that, that other slot receiver. Daniel Morgan asks, what are things that Lincoln Riley should be doing to keep Caleb Williams settled so we don't end up with another Oregon State game where Caleb Williams' nerves seem to get the best of him? I think it's just experience. You know, remember, Caleb Williams is a young quarterback, you know, and I think that USC was caught off guard a little bit by how rambunctious and noisy and how, you know, just loud the whole environment was in in Corvallis you know you go in you say okay they only got half of the stadium you know Lincoln Riley even admitted hey they asked some other coaches what's it like did not expect it just to have the impact that it did where you know they struggled with the play calls and stuff so I think the USC has probably worked a little bit more on whether it be the silent count you know getting the play call in a little bit earlier I think those type things will help Caleb out a little bit because you know I, I think that things started to snowball on him a little bit in that game where you know, his first throw is, is, is you know, the first couple throws, one of them's dropped uh, to Mario Williams. One of them's just a little bit outside of Taj Washington, just over his fingertips. One of them's a little bit overthrown on Brendan Rice, and suddenly you start snowballing a little bit when the play call's not coming in as quick. You're trying to rush at the at line of scrimmage. You're wasting timeouts. All those things, you nerves start going a little bit. But how how about the job of him? to get fully composed and, you know, the job of Lincoln Riley to settle him down before that final drive. And he goes out and wins the game for USC. So, you know, I I think that's something that he'll even probably be talking about this week. Lincoln Riley to Caleb Williams is, Hey, remember what happened at Oregon state. Okay. Let's not, let's focus on the positives of that last drive. Look what you're capable of and what you've done in the, the red river rivalry and the other games that you had when they were together at Oklahoma, when there was a late game situation or where there's a, a, a raucous crowd, how did you deal with it then? And just kind of build off the things in the past. And I think Caleb Williams, you know, I, I think that he's going to be, I don't think you'll see the kind of the, the wide throws and everything that we saw at Oregon state where it did seem like everything was snowballing on him. I, I think if he has an errant throw here or there, I think he'll be much more equipped to be able to get back to the fundamentals, focus on his his technique, and be able to to get things going in the right direction. Kenneth Wynn wants to know, what has been your opinion of the offensive play call in the last few games? I feel like the offense has been very out of sync compared to the beginning of the year. There has been some things where there has been a little bit out of sync, um, and I, I think that part of it stems back to the offensive line, actually. You know, I think when Cortland Ford went down, I think there's been some struggles there. Um, with the the tackle positions off the edges, especially at left tackle, and Bobby Haskins being beat up in both of his shoulders, it seems like I think he's struggled at times with some of the the power moves that he's seen from some teams and just pure speed coming off the edge. Um, and then Justin Dietrich being beat up. So I, I think both of those the you know the bruises and and bangs and beatdowns that the offensive line takes, you know I, I think that it's gotten them a little bit out of sync with with some of those things and just not giving Caleb Williams good pockets. Where you remember early in the season it just felt like he had days to throw the ball. 
uh, back there. Whereas now it seems like he's got to, you know, avoid a guy a little bit early. And because, you know, you're getting some pressure up the middle as well. So now he's not able to just step up in the pocket. Uh, so he's been scrambling a little bit more. So I think that's played into it. But USC's used a lot of different looks in the last couple of weeks. And some people have said, hey, they're saving this for the Utah game or they're saving this for later on. But they've used a lot of different looks at least. Now, a lot of, sometimes it's the same play out of a different look. But you're seeing more motions. You're seeing more of the wide receivers lining up at the H-back the position. You're seeing more two tight end sets. You know, you actually had more two tight end sets in this past game than any other game so far this season. They used 21 snaps. They had two tight ends on the field. Um, and the most they had had previously was 14. And, uh, you know, that was a kind of a, still a little bit of a standout there. So they've done some different things. Uh, the last couple of games and given some different looks. Now, maybe that's a little bit of gamesmanship to Utah saying, okay, get prepared for this and this and this and this and this. But it is also just you're going up a different defense each week and you're going to you know break out some different things here and there. But I, I think the, the biggest thing is getting that run game going early and getting some consistency in the run game. Um, I, I think that's where it all starts. And once you do that, then everything else kind of falls into place. And then you can break, break out more of those creative play calls that you have come up with, designed for those those screens one way and then going the other. You know, you can show your versatility and your creativity as a play caller, an offensive coordinator, uh, head coach, after you establish the run game and suddenly now you can't, the opposition can't just play, um, you know, one high safety. They got to put an extra guy. They got to put six guys in the box to give you a little bit more space. They, you know, and do some different things like that. 34 jump cut asks, what are the three keys on offense and three on defense to win this game? And special teams, you feel like that is going to be a deciding factor. I don't know if we get into three keys on each of them. I'd have to write that down, do all that, but let's start with special teams first. Special teams has been Utah's baby, and they have been really good at it over the years, but they're not necessarily great this year. Their punter is really good, and they don't really give up any return yardage there, and they've gotten a couple of nice returns in the punt game. But I think that they're just not – they're one of the worst teams in the country, actually, in kickoff return coverage or kickoff coverage. So it'll be interesting to see if USC can find a, you know, find a sliver for Raleigh Brown or you know, put somebody back there. You know, can, you, can you open that hole up? That's been the big question. It's interesting to me that, that some of the special teams USC has, they rotate a ton of people. And the other ones, they don't rotate anybody. So, um, you know, can they find the right mix of guys on special teams to really, you know, create that big play? And special teams right now is just holding steady for USC. They're not giving up any big plays. They're not, you know, creating any big plays. And that's perfectly fine with the playmakers they have on offense and defense. Uh, the, the keys on offense and defense, I, I think, is just kind of a continuance of what has been successful and when USC has struggled is being able to run the ball consistently and then work off the play action stuff and be able to keep a guy in there. Because once you get one-on-one coverage for Mario Williams or one-on-one coverage for Jordan Addison, you're going to win most of those matchups. So give Caleb Williams a little bit of time and a play action that kind of holds a linebacker or holds the safety, and suddenly you're going to be in business. So I, I think it starts with if you can get the run game established up front and then giving Caleb Williams a little bit of time. On the defensive side is just continuing to pressure. You know, the pressure, USC's one of the top in the country uh, as far as their pressure rate when they're only bringing four guys and they're not blitzing. You know, they're finding ways to get to the quarterback and affect the quarterback. You saw Tulu Pelotu obviously have the three sacks. Nick Figueroa is not playing a ton of snaps, but he's getting a ton of pressure. And then 
I think in this game, a key is going to be when you get that pressure, getting the quarterback on the ground. Because Cameron Rising is a strong dude. He's tough to bring down. He's got a wicked stiff arm. He could take off running the ball, and he's hurt USC in the past running the ball. So I, I think one of the biggest things is you know getting that guy on the ground when you have an opportunity to. I think USC's secondary has been really good. You know, now, can the, can the defense, while you're getting that pressure – can you also stop those chunk yardage run plays? And the USC has been really good of, hey, they give up 20 yards here, 20 yards there, and 20 yards, and then stop people in the red zone. But can you, you know, can you cut out some of those chunk yardage plays and the 20-yard play becomes a 10-yard play, the 10-yard play becomes a five-yard run? I think those are the type of things is as the season progresses, if this defense is going to continue to get better, that's one of the things they can still make some improvement on. RB 26-27. It said, not sure if you're keeping a running tally or just game by game, but if you keep overall, what's the highest yards per play formation through six games? Uh, minimum 20 plays. What's the lowest yards per play? I don't have those. Uh, I usually do that at the end of the season. I do keep a running tally of uh, you know all the plays in one spreadsheet, but I don't have that one tallied up, unfortunately. Uh, but I will say that I, I think the answer for highest yards per play formation is usually just when USC goes four wide with one running back in, in the backfield. I think just because they have so many weapons, when you add two, three, four on the on the field, Brendan Rice, Mario Williams, and Jordan Addison, and then you throw Taj Washington out there, and he's been very productive for them as that second slot receiver. And then you, once you spread teams out, and you see USC will sometimes really widen out those wide receivers to try to make you know defenses really have to stretch the, themselves sideline to sideline, and then they can attack five on five a lot of times up front with with uh Travis Dye or you run a read option with Travis Dye and uh and and Caleb Williams and now it's six on five with Caleb Williams potentially taking off with the ball or it's six on six if they've got an extra guy in the box so you know just those different things that they're able to do in that formation and that they've had a lot of success with the screen game and whatnot so uh, I think the best one so far just off the top of my head has been their four wide receiver one running back sets JRUSC says, which freshman has been seeing the largest increase in snaps as the season has been going on? And unfortunately, JR, there's not a lot of options here as far as freshmen, true freshmen at least. Damani Jackson played seven snaps against Oregon State and you know, had that special package that he was involved in to come in when they used the, the big formations, the multiple tight end looks, the Jack Coletto stuff that they had. And then against Arizona State, he was in the mix. So he played 23 snaps. And I thought that we would probably see him again against Washington State, you know, subbing in that third or fourth drive at, you know, at the second cornerback spot. But like I said earlier, he left the game early. It seemed like he only played three snaps. So I would say it was pro it's probably him. And he's just coming along as he's getting healthy. But you could also throw Leek Brown in there. And again, that's on health as well as he's recovered from that ankle injury. You know, he played 18 snaps against Arizona State, which was, you know, a season high for him, a career high for him. And then he played 12 snaps against Washington State, which wasn't as many. But the fact that he was in front of Austin Jones in the pecking order tells you that maybe he's taking that step forward and becoming that next guy. Uh, one other guy that I would point out who's not a true freshman, but Sierra Wright, uh, it seems like he's taken over as that primary number two guy when at first it was, hey, we're going to split every other uh, series with uh, Jacoby Covington and then also uh, you know, a little bit working in uh, Damani Jackson when he came back. But Sierra Wright recently has been taking the vast majority of the snaps at that secondary spot. So he's another guy I would point out. 
Leah for SCS. What is the real reason why Cortland Ford did not play versus Washington State, but Mason Murphy did? I mean, we can only go by what Lincoln Riley tells us because we we don't have an injury report or anything. But if I were a betting man, I would say that Cortland Ford, you know, he left after giving up a holding penalty in that Arizona State game, just did not look like he was 100%. I would guess that he can't, he did not play, and Marissa Murphy did because Cortland Ford's not 100%. So they decided, okay, the backup is going to be Mason Murphy if we need him. And it was also the final four plays of the half. So maybe if they went to the half and decided, hey, Bobby Haskins is done, he's not going to be able to play the second half. Maybe then they look to Cortland Ford and say, okay, do we need to make a move here? Do we need to put him in? But because, you know, because it was only four, it was at the end of the half and it ended up being only four snaps, then I think they felt, okay, let's put the fresh, put Mason Murphy in there, the freshman, uh, Richard freshman, give him an opportunity. And then if we need to make a decision, we will at halftime. But I, I, I would guess it's because, you know, that he's having a nagging injury, dealing with that foot uh, ankle injury where he got stepped on in the uh, Stanford game. Banff 95 asked a couple questions here, but it start with, it looks like the tight ends are not targeted much. Is that fit player or opponent's matchup? It's interesting. When they get in the red zone, the tight ends become weapons. We saw uh, Malcolm Epps get a look. We saw Lake McCree get a look and get hit. Lake McCree was also, they were in the same play earlier and would have been open, but a, a defensive end kind of blew up that play. I uh, didn't get him, uh, give him a chance to get out, and the pressure kept Caleb Williams from being able to throw it. But they were looking for Lake McCree a couple times down in the red zone. So I think that that's what they're they're looking for, those guys. And we've seen Lake McCree. There was a third down play where you know he ran a, ran a play, I think a yard short of the sticks, got a catch there. So in those, those shorter yardage situations, those red zone situations, I think that's when they're looking for the tight ends a little bit more. Giles Miles asks, will the Utes try to play man against our receivers? How has Utah's run defense looked so far this season? Are we going to be able to run the ball against them? I answered this a couple of these a little bit earlier. That, that's a big question about are they going to try to play man? I, I think that's a, a has been a conundrum of Utah being stubborn in the past. Uh, we'll, we'll see if they do that again or if they you know they try to read the room and say okay USC just hasn't been quite as good against man uh, zone coverage so we're going to run a little bit more of that and sometimes it's hard for a tire to change his stripes if you don't practice zone all the time in practice and then suddenly you try to throw it in there it's not going to look that crisp you're going to have blown coverages and you're going to give up bigger plays so sometimes coaches don't feel comfortable going away from what they normally do anyway so uh, that that one's going to be an interesting uh, thing to keep an eye on as the game progresses there we mentioned their run defense earlier yes a USC should be able to run the ball against them and if they do that should open things up as it goes SDL Trojan with an interesting question. Are there any schemes or formation from spring practice in the first two games that have been shelved since? I don't really consider spring practice as something that we can really take a ton away from. You know, they're not going to show too much there anyway. They're just trying to install, you know, the basics as they're going through things. That's usually just kind of, all right, well, let's, let's get the basics in, basics in as a new coaching staff, and then we'll build from there once you get to the fall. So I'm not really paying too much attention to that part of the question, but the first two games – What's been different? And I think one of the things is what I talked about a little bit earlier is, you know, is the the running backs being used as blockers, you know, having two guys in the backfield and one of them being offset right beside Caleb Williams and then going and being the lead blocker. And I actually asked Austin Jones and Travis Dye about this earlier in the season. I said, hey, you know, when's the last time you were a blocker? Have you ever been? And both of them were like, 
no, that's not something I did previously, you know, at Stanford or at Oregon. So that was something new to them. And they, they were embracing the challenge and, you know, just seeing, you know, what they could do with it. And, you know, being that guy that leads the way for, for their teammate and their, their running back mate. So that was something a, a little bit different for them. But also that's something they haven't really used much since the first couple of games. And again, I think that goes back to kind of the development, the Lake McCree getting healthy. He's been a guy they've used in the backfield a little bit more than Josh Follow or Malcolm Epps. Malcolm Epps doesn't they don't usually use him in the backfield. They usually keep him on the line of scrimmage or, you know, in that H back spot, you know, just off the line of scrimmage, maybe a little just a, a hair inside of the tackle. Um, so it, whereas Josh Follow's kind of done a little bit of both. Uh, but I think you're seeing Josh follow. He's a guy whose who's snaps have kind of taken off recently. And, and and Lincoln Riley talked a little bit about him Thursday morning uh, as far as just him getting over injuries and, and, you know, working his way back. And they had a lot of discussions early in the year or in the spring as well. And you've seen the last two games. He only played um, 12 offensive snaps the first four games of the season. He's played 29 against Arizona State. He played 30 against Washington State. You know, he's played 33 total snaps in both the last two games. That's the most he had played since 2019, basically. So I, I think you're seeing him come on. That's really cool to see because of how many things he's been through in his time at USC, especially when people saw him coming out of the Sacramento area, really thought that he could be the next great tight end at USC. and just hadn't really happened for him. So it's been fun to see him the last couple of games get some opportunities and make the most of them. But I think that's one of the things that you're seeing is the tight end position is, is evolving and developing a little bit. And so because of that, they've stopped using the running backs in the backfield quite as much. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. All right, let's jump over to some basketball questions now. John Donsick, want to know who's your under-the-radar new men's basketball roster player who can have a big impact this year? Everyone I talk to is super excited about Oziah Sellers. I believe he's the lowest-ranked recruit in this class, but could potentially be the best. And this was something interesting uh, that Brendan Jenkins, our 
our national um, analyst for 24-7 sports. I remember when Kajani Wright was, was committing to USC. I was talking to him, getting some quotes for a future impact story, and he told me, man, keep your eyes on sellers. Keep your eye on he could be a dude. And he's already, you know, people have told me he's the best shooter that USC has brought in as a true freshman. Um, you know, he's come in and he's just knocking down shots, knocking down shots. So can the other parts of his game develop? Um, or is he just a zone breaker? I mean, he could be just a zone breaker as a freshman and still have a huge impact for USC. But if, it, if the rest of his game continues to progress and he can hold it, take care of the ball on the wing, then I think he's a guy that could really make an impact for USC this year from everything that I've heard about him so far. Best Lakers fan wants to know what position is the greatest strength and greatest weakness on our basketball team? The, the USC basketball team, their greatest strength is going to be the guard play. It's going to be the triumvirate of Boogie Ellis, Drew Peterson, Reesticks and Waters. Those three guys can take over a game at different times. Uh, Reesticks and Waters getting him healthy is a big key to that. Uh, but the fact that Boogie Ellis can you know get hot and hit five threes in a row, the fact that Drew Peterson can do what he did to UCLA last year, the fact that he can impact the game in so many different ways, and the fact that Reesticks and Waters showed you just a taste of what he can do in that Miami game when he was playing with a bad hip and still put up a career high in points in the NCAA tournament. So I think that is going to be the strength. The weakness is going to be the post-depth. You know, you thought coming in that – with uh, Joshua Morgan was going to take a step forward, and I've heard he's done a, a nice job kind of you know, uh, it, embracing the role that he's going to have this year as the starting uh, big man and being a, you know, a, a front-line defender, but also a guy that has to be able to finish around the rim for USC. But you, you thought you would have, be able to back him up and have a veteran there and follow with you know, both Vince Iwachukwu and Kajani Wright and unfortunately, that's not going to be the case, at least to open the season. Iwachuku, you know, obviously is still uh, a to-be-determined situation there. And Hey, I, I, sources around the team have told me they're hopeful for things and, and how it could be progressing, but it's still a, a big question mark there. So they went out and got the, the Russian forward, and, you know, how much of an impact is he going to be able to make as a true freshman? How is Kajani Wright ready to step up? He's a guy that I thought – would be more of a reserve this year, play a little bit early in the season, and then next year be the year where he kind of takes off. But now they're going to need him potentially to play more uh, more minutes this season. So that's why I think that's part of the reason why USC is going to go to more of a four-guard lineup. Now Harrison Hornery can play down low as well, but I think you're going to see USC, their strengths on the wings. So I think that's where they're, they're going to you know use as many spots as possible, four out, one in, and try to move the ball quickly and get open shots and really attack, you know, dribble drive, kick, and be able to knock down some shots. David Law for basketball, who will be the starters this year and what's their ceiling in the conference? You know, I think the three guys I just mentioned on the wing will be three of them. I think Joshua Morgan is your, your big man down low. And then the fourth spot's a little bit uh, of an interesting uh, – could go in different ways. So, you know, who, who does the coaching staff trust? Who do they want to put in there? Is Kobe Johnson a guy that you want coming off the bench? Uh, is he a guy that you want to to be able to come in and, and spell your your two guard your two guards at the top uh, of the lineup? Or is he a guy that you want to start with him? Is is Trey White a guy that you can start? Is Oziah Sellers a guy that you can start? Is someone else ready to step up and be that guy? That's the question. Is Malik Thomas? I think Malik Thomas could take a big jump in his game this season. So I, I think there's some different options there. 
but I don't know exactly which way it's going to go. I think it's going to be one of those newcomers or one of those guys from the last two years, obviously. Um, but uh, the the question is, will be how do they want to use Kobe Johnson? Because I don't think that you nef- necessarily want to have a Kobe Johnson, Boogie Ellis, Drew Peterson lineup. And be you know Drew Peterson having to play the four with Reese Dixon Waters out there, you could do that. But you know I think that just becomes a, a challenge defensively for USC. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how they use it, how they use Kobe Johnson in particular, as to you know how the at least starting lineup starts with. To answer the back half of that question, what's their ceiling in the conference? I think that they could be in the the top half for sure. Um, where they can land on that, uh, I haven't seen or done enough research because I'm in football mode on what all the basketball programs have brought in. Obviously UCLA's, you know, brought in some talented freshmen. Oregon is always good, but who else is going to be in that mix outside of Arizona? That's the real question. I think USC could potentially be in that top five, you know, in that four to six range behind, you know, those three teams, Arizona, Oregon, and UCLA. Or can USC work their way up? You know, I, I think if Vince was around and, you know, showed the potential that he has, I would feel more confident with that. But I still think that the USC is going to be – there's going to be challenges. There's going to be some hiccups along the way as they make the change to that four-guard set. Gate Call asks, what are your thoughts on a four-guard lineup? And I think it's kind of a necessity. I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing it. And that's what the best coaching staffs do is, you know, adapt to their talent. You try to recruit to your system as much as possible, but then, hey, if you have an injury, you have something unforeseen come up, you, you know, you have a guy leave early or, you know, whatever it may be or transfer out, then I think that's when you have to make adjustments. And I think that's what this coaching staff is trying to do. Super Trojan 5 asks, what do you think about Joshua Morgan? Seems like he's not developed after that great freshman season at Long Beach State. Do you think he can be a starter? Yes, I do think he'll be a starter. And I think that, you know, he was a little bit timid when he got to USC, you know, and the part of that is maybe he's, you know, he's seeing the Mobley brothers. I have some great photos actually when he was at Long Beach State of Isaiah Mobley dunking on him when they were both freshmen. So maybe, you know, he comes in and now he's not starting all the time. He needed more minutes. Obviously he had needed to, uh, to, to grow into his body a little bit more. And now he's growing into his body, getting that strength. Now he's got to be able to combine that with some extra post moves with some stuff. He was still good on the defensive end, and that was where the strength was at Long Beach State. He was still being able to do that when he came in in spells, but now he's going to have a different role this year. He's going to be a starter. He's going to be asked to do a little bit more. He's going to have to do something on the offensive end. So we'll see, has he taken a step with his offensive moves, or is he just a guy that is going to be down there at the block and, hey, he can clean up uh, you know, clean up for dunks, clean up for layups, or is he someone that USC can occasionally throw the ball into and he can make a move? and go get you a basket if you need um, in, in, a, in a bigger situation you know, or, or knock down a kind of a you know that baseline jumper, that mid-range shot when the guards are driving and kicking to kind of get out of the way of the guards. He kind of slides out to the baseline. If he can knock down that shot, he becomes even more of, of an asset for USC on the offensive end as well. I think he'd definitely be an asset on the defensive end. All right, let's jump over to baseball. Get some some final baseball questions in, then get out of here, get ready for this flight to Salt Lake City for me. David Law wants to know, Shotgun, is this a completely lost year for baseball, or do they have a sliver of hope for postseason action? Who are the players who will make me want to go see some games this year? I, I don't know that it's completely lost year. Um, and, you know, and I think part of the reason why I don't know that is because 
you know, there's a lot of new faces on this group, uh, you know, on this team. And how well does the camaraderie come together? That can lead, that can be the difference in four or five wins in a college baseball season. Whether you can finish off a game late in the season, are you playing for the guy beside you? Do you believe? You know, all those things. Those can be maybe not four or five. Maybe that's two or three wins. And then how good is your bullpen? Your bullpen now that can definitely be four or five games, swing it one way or another. So I don't know where you know the depth that USC has right here. Um, and I got a chance to talk to Seth Etherton the other day, and he told me, "Hey, I'm still learning." He had just been able to see you know a lot of the pitchers for the first time this week. They're just kind of ramping up. They get going with uh, you know their full fall practice here in a in a few days. So you know they're still learning and, and don't really know exactly what they have so far. Now they brought in some interesting pieces. Um, and I, I think one of those pieces um, is, is a kid from from CSUN that I had seen a couple of times. Uh, Blake Sodderson pitched for CSUN and was a guy that was in their weekend rotation. And he could be an X factor for USC, but he struggled last year. I saw him against USC in a midweek game and earlier uh, that the, the weekend prior to that and just really struggled. And obviously Dave Serrano was the coach at CSUN, really knows how to to work with, with players and unfortunately just couldn't find, press those magic buttons. So maybe a change of scenery is good for Sutterson and gets him going. And if so, he could be an interesting piece for them. You know, a guy that has a ton of experience in the Big West, doesn't have necessarily overpowering stuff, but if he can pitch to the pitch to the mitt, he can be a guy that could be good for USC this season. Uh, I mentioned earlier this season, Caden Aoki, I think he's a guy that's going to be uh, one to go see. He was banged up at Notre Dame last year or probably would have pitched a decent amount for a team that went to, you know, to the college world series. So, and beat, you know, the number one overall seed in uh, the university of Tennessee. So he's a guy that I got my eye on for sure. Uh, there's a couple other pieces. I've heard really good things about Mark Grezelonik's son, the former, uh, former Dodger, I believe it was uh, his son transferred over from UCLA. Wasn't seeing any playing time over there comes over and has seen some positive things. But there's going to be some question marks for sure with this group. And, you know, I, I think it's still a little bit of a wait and see. I'm curious to see when they play their fall scrimmages. They're going to have a scrimmage against at Cal State Bakersfield. And they're also going to scrim, scrimmage, I believe, against Golden West College, the junior college, at uh, Dado uh, later. I believe both of those are in November. Best Lakers fans said, what should we expect of the baseball program for the upcoming year? I'm not thinking that they're going to make the postseason. But the big thing is going to be, all right, is the culture coming around? Are they taking steps forward? Obviously, the the culture has been a big issue with the previous staff, all the things that were going on. The COVID stuff did not help, made it that much more difficult. You know, I've heard a lot of positive things around the program. Uh, I mentioned this to multiple people who came to the the Peristyle, uh, you know, our uscfootball.com tailgate earlier this year. But I had a, a parent tell me that, hey, you know, my son said that this is the best coaching staff he's ever been around and that Seth Edgerton, that was, this was a pitcher that was the best pitching coach he's ever had. And that was only from working with the, the coaching staff for a few days. So how does that change as the fall goes along and as they get into the season? And when they hit that first rough patch, how is this group going to handle it? All those things will play into it. Um, but I, I think that that's something that is going to be a big key for this season. That's going to be potentially more important than the wins and losses. Hey, if you go on a run and get in the postseason, that's great. But it's the this is a big stepping stone year because you got to be able to start building. You know, recruiting is done in baseball usually two, three, four years in advance. You know, a lot of kids are committed by the time they 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 start their sophomore season. 
So it's going to take a little bit of time for USC to turn around and overturn the, the, the talent pool that they're playing with and finding ways to be able to manipulate the money so that they can get in talented players uh, and whatnot going forward. That's all going to you know determine how well this program can be in the future. But I think for this season upcoming, are they playing? Are they having fun? And are they building that culture? And then we'll start seeing do the wins follow that as well. Crown Cindy wanted to know, what is the general sentiment of the baseball community on the Andy Stankowitz hire? Are the Trojans in a position to improve future recruiting classes as a result? I don't know if you guys saw the piece that I did right after uh, Andy Stankowitz was hired by USC, but I asked at least one coach from every school on the West Coast to send me you know, their reaction to the hire. and got over 40 responses, and pretty much it was just 100%. This is a great hire for USC. And this could be the hire that gets USC out of the doldrums. So we'll see if that is the case. And uh, the, the second question from Crown City, are the Trojans in a position to improve uh, future recruiting classes as a result? Um, I, I think getting Andy Stankiewicz is great because he's very personable and you saw what he was do, was able to do at Grand Canyon as far as identifying talent and whatnot. But I think also the pieces that, that he was able to hire around the fact that you get Travis Jewett, who is the former head coach at Tulane, who has been a tremendous assistant at Arizona State and Washington and Washington State and Vanderbilt as a national champion at Vanderbilt. I think that is huge. He's the recruiting coordinator. He is a guy that you want to get in front of as many people as possible because everyone pretty much loves him that talks to him. And then you bring in Seth Etherton, you know, a USC legend. You bring him in from the professional side, and you're talking about development from the professional side. He developed a lot of pitchers in that Cincinnati organization. A lot of people talked very positively about him during his time with the organization. So I think you know a, a positive hire there as well. We'll see how he transitions to the college game. That's always a little bit of a question mark with anyone coming from the professional ranks back to the college ranks, just with dealing with different different things. You know, you're not able to work with players all day every day. You're not. A, you only have a certain amount of time and then the recruiting aspect is so different whereas in pro ball you just take what you're given from from the management side and then you you grab you grab andy jenkins as a volunteer coach who was previously an on-field coach at cal state fullerton has worked has been in the uh, oregon state program in the past and then you add sergio brown as your director of player development i mean that is that's probably the the best hire of the group just the fact that he's a guy that's going to be not on the field, but just adding the knowledge that he has from over 20-something years. I think the the staff they put together was what really impressed me by this hire in in full rather than just the hire of Andy Stankiewicz. It showed that USC was committed to this hire, that they were going to invest uh, in the program, and I think that's really important for the the program going forward. BAMF95 want to know, when will the baseball team start to get some full ride options like other private schools with the systems they have in place? I remember reading it was soon. Also, isn't there something in place to help baseball scholarships everywhere too? So there is the potential of there being a, you know, of the 11.7 rule, which is the all, the amount of scholarships that baseball has to divide among all Division I college baseball programs, have to divide among their full roster. So that's 27 to 35 players on the roster, you have to divide up 11.7 scholarships. Uh, so that's a very interesting number. Where they even come up with that 0.7, I don't know. But uh, the fact that 
you have to divide that up. It makes it very difficult, especially for a, a university where they very high price tag. Now, some other private schools like Vanderbilt and Stanford supplant that with, you know, with um, academic money and, you know, with something that's provided to the full student body like Stanford, where if your family makes under, I believe it's 150,000, then you can go to school for free. Then that can be extended to baseball players as well. However, you can't put in your own kind of things just for baseball. So, you know, USC recently uh, put in something where if you have uh, a household income, I believe it's under 80000 then you get free tuition at USC or you get a certain amount of tuition uh, paid for at USC. So that will help out USC's baseball program. But the question going forward and the bigger one is, is the NCAA going to make some changes to where there are more baseball scholarships allowed for each school or at least for each conference is allowed to make the rules on that? And where will the Big Ten, because that's when it will more than likely take effect, maybe by next year, but more than likely 2024, you know, will the Big Ten go all in like the SEC and say, okay, well, you can have 25 scholarships, you can have 30, or will they kind of tiptoe their way in and say, okay, we're we're expanding the amount of scholarships that our conference teams are allowed to to give out, but only to 18 or only to 16, which will help USC a little bit, but you want to be on the same footing as, you know, the big dogs, and that's the SEC in baseball as well as football. BND said, I know it's an unfair question, but if you had to guess, who do you think will be the starting position players and weekend starting pitchers for the Trojans this year, at least to start the season? I won't hold you to your predictions. Yeah, that's a bit unfair because, again, like I said, we don't really, you know, I haven't seen the full roster, haven't seen, you know, the guys in action. You know, I, I think a couple of guys to keep an eye on, or a couple that I've already mentioned with Caden Aoki, with Soderston with Grezlanik and Cole Gabrielson, the outfielder from a JUCO um, who turned down some money to come to USC. He was academically ineligible because of a transcript issue or something. I wasn't exactly sure you know, when I was told about this last year. So he didn't, wasn't able to play until the spring semester ended and then played a couple games at the very end of the year. But both coaching staffs, both the previous coaching staff and the current one are excited about Gabrielson. So he's a guy to watch. And then another outfielder to keep an eye on is Carson Wells, you know, the younger brother of Austin Wells, who was a catcher at uh, Arizona, who became, I believe, a first or second second round pick, maybe. Maybe it was a first round pick. Uh, he's a guy that, you know, that I've heard that was off to a great start at USC initially. He's a guy that could be a guy for him. Austin O'Vern, the walk-on for the football program, he's got a different type of athleticism. Now, how much – he's going over and practicing a little bit with baseball right now on his off days of football – but how is he going to, you know, develop if he's not getting a ton of time um, at the at the baseball field? He's a guy that you know is is one to keep an eye on for sure. He could be in the mix for one of those starting outfield positions because the outfield's pretty thin. Uh, that's going to be one of the concerns for USC. I think Ryan Jackson, the transfer from Nevada, he's a guy that that I have heard positive things about both from his coaching staff that that had him at Nevada from the current coaching staff at USC. You know, he's a good good fit for USC. He doesn't do anything really flashy, but he's going to be a solid player at shortstop for USC. Adrian Colon-Rosado uh, was, 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 you know, a kid from Puerto Rico, didn't play his first couple of years at USC, really took off last year. I think he's a guy that will be uh, a piece for USC. Then on the mound, you got to start with a couple guys that started last year. Tyler Stromsburg was in the, the weekend rotation. Jaden Agassi was in the weekend rotation. 
you know, those two guys that got to be the front runners to start somewhere. Blake Sodderson will be in that mix. Kate Naoki will be in that mix. And the wild card could be, does Eric Hammond get back fully healthy? If he's, he could be in that mix. So he, he's a guy that could be the starting rotation. Garrett Clark has been a very a dynamic weapon for USC. They've used primarily out of the bullpen. Uh, can he develop a, a third, fourth pitch to, to be able to be in the starting mix, or do you keep him in the bullpen? Toby Spock's another guy that had some important innings for USC last year. Jason Sterles as well. So there's some pieces there. Kyle Wish transferred from Nebraska. There were some pieces on, on the mound. Can they take that step forward, though? That's going to be the big question there. Um, you know, Ethan Hoopengarner, a guy that was so great his freshman year uh, in, in or his uh, second year in 2020, and just you know, came back and just wasn't the same after the, the all the COVID stuff and whatnot. So he, there's some different pieces on the 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 mound that USC that could be good, but. We'll see how it plays out during this this fall and when USC is getting ready to go forward into the spring. Uh, you know who's who's stepping up then. That's what matters. When you come back from winter break, who's pitching well then? Those are the guys that'll end up getting there. And then a final question for the pod: Famush sent me a, a DM here. Said I, I follow USC athletics on social media. They're currently showing the baseball team a lot of love, especially the mic'd up posts. What do you attribute this newfound showing of the baseball team? Also, how do you feel recruiting is going? Does the team have a shot in the postseason? Answer some of those things. Recruiting, I think, is going pretty well. But like I said, recruiting is done a lot of times, two and three years in advance. So sometimes, you know, sometimes you get guys that pop up as juniors and seniors, but a lot of times it's those freshmen or sophomores that, you know, everyone already knows about. Those are the guys that are making commitments early, and those are usually your game changers for you. But I think that, the, you know, Travis Jewett, they've gotten a lot of commits. I haven't, you know, dug into, you know, how valuable those guys are to the future success of USC or how many of those guys, uh, you know, if there's any of those guys in that mix that are area code guys potentially or All-American type of guys, guys that could be drafted in those first few rounds. Those are the ones you worry about a little bit more. You know, don't, don't none of the names that USC has picked up for commitments that really stood out, stuck out to me as, oh, I've seen that guy play already at some of the underclass stuff. So, you know, those may be pieces that add to, you know, the team, but don't necessarily get drafted early. So that could be a positive for USC as well. The, the newfound showing of the mic'd up posts and stuff on the social media, I think, again, it just goes to, uh, you know, and I don't know if it's access and how much access the previous staff was given versus this staff. I don't think that would necessarily be it because I think Jason Gill was very open and, and doing everything. But I think it's just the, the athletic department has said, we're going to supply resources. We're going to do what we can. And it's something that you want to get the face and you want to get the names. You want to get, you know, the, the, the kind of the character of your coaching staff out there a little bit. So with a new coaching staff, you're going to see more of those type things done a little bit. Well, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Herd on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle podcast family. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratling. Finishing off this mailbag edition of the Herd on the Sidelines podcast. Thanks again to everyone for taking the time to listen. Please go out and like, share, subscribe, leave us a review on your podcast listening platform. And I hope you guys can join us for the next episode of the Herd on the Sidelines podcast. <laughs>